Welcome back to an extra special episode of the Global Gamers Podcast. Yes, this is a Global Gamers Podcast first for us, and we're really excited about it. We are going to be doing our first ever interview live today. Um, This is a milestone, checking off the box of, you know, things we wanted to accomplish since the beginning. Very exciting. And so we are joined today and very excited to have uh, Joe Fritz Paul from Oak Lounge Games. He is the director of game design there, and he is the game designer for Prestige, a city building game. Which will be uh, launching on Kickstarter next month, June. So today, uh, well, first, welcome, Fritz. We're going to call you Fritz. Um, Great to have you with us. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This is also a first for me. I've never been on a podcast before. Uh, And I'm also in Oakland, kind of, so... That oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Okay, so we're covering both coasts of the U.S. right now. Yeah. Um, not quite global, but continental. <laughs> um, okay. Um, so before we get into talking about your experience in design and publishing and, you know, you telling us a bit about your upcoming game, we just wanted to get a little bit of your um, gamer ID by asking sure. you a couple of questions so that we and everyone listening can get a sense of um, what kind of games you like and how you got into this cool hobby that we all enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So yeah, was just curious. um, Yeah. What uh, were some of the first games you enjoyed and what got you interested in tabletop games? Uh, So I'm going to go with the cliche route, which like all everyone who's asked this question says, but you know, I grew up playing the simple games like, uh, Monopoly. Um, in fact, me and my sisters used to play Monopoly all the time. Uh, I don't know if I've ever played Monopoly by the rules because we just kind of made up our own <laughs> no rules one as does. children. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and I notoriously incorporated uh, a loan shark rule, which I didn't know what a loan shark was back then, but that's what <laughs> a relative had called it, I guess, because we didn't want the game to end, so we just kept loaning each other money. And oh, we great. did that too, yeah. <laughs> And no one ever paid it off because yeah, then, no. but it just kept going until everyone got mad. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where I started. Uh, and I played a few others. Uh, I played uh, Catan in high school. Yep. Um, I owned Dominion and oh, yeah. got into that for a little bit. Uh, and I remember in college, I was in- invited into this little game night that my RA was hosting where he had Sentinels of the Multiverse or the Universe. I forget what yeah, I've, the game I, it's is multiverse. Exactly I've heard of it. I okay. don't know anything about it. Yeah, I don't. I couldn't tell you much about it either. I played it for like half an hour and I had a lot of fun, but I'm pretty sure I didn't do anything right and we lost horribly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. Uh, but for even sure. then, I didn't really know that the this wide world of games existed. Uh, until I moved out here to the Bay Area, and one of my roommates had uh, like two to three hundred games that he just had on his shelves when I moved in, and I was like, wow. I didn't even know this existed. Uh, and then for a good year, I just played a different game, seemingly uh, two three times a week uh, with him and his wife and all of the neighbors in the neighborhood. Uh, and it was just mind opening that uh, we were able to just find a new game to play every single time. Yeah, that's 
That's pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, we, <laughs> I don't think I've ever encountered like someone's home with hundreds of games, but we kind of have like even just between the two of us recently in the past few months, gone to a point where like weekly or so there's a new game to try. Like Ryan mm-hmm. just walked in today and pulled out Brass Birmingham. I'm like, okay, cool. Add that nice. to the list of like <laughs> ten games we haven't played yet. Plus all the other ones we've only like played once. Plus all the old favorites, you know. And yeah. Before you know it, it's it's like mission creep. That's, yeah, that, that sounds like you really hit the jackpot, though. I mean, like a physical manifestation of uh, BGG, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, and it was great because he loved games in general, uh, yeah. and it wasn't like he he really liked Euros or he really liked X, Y, and Z. He just had everything you could imagine. So it really opened my eyes to all of the possibilities that games could be. Very cool. That's really um, cool. So of all the maybe dozens or hundreds of games that you've played, do you have a favorite? I do. Or uh, you can pick a couple if, if it's that tough. Sure. Yeah. I, I do have one that will always reign supreme in my mind, which is Above and Below by Ryan Laukat. Um, okay. I apologize if I butchered his name there, but I think that's correct. Um, okay. But... It was one of the earliest games I was introduced to. It's probably the game outside of any of the ones that I've made that I've played the most. Um, And every time I go back to it, it's just an immense amount of fun. Uh, It's this interesting... It it in itself is a city-building game uh, Mm -hmm. on one level where you're building out this city, and it's got gorgeous artwork. Um, Something I really like about it, though, is you're building all these different buildings that have different effects, but none of them are named. And none of them hmm. are, like, entirely obvious of what they are. You kind of have to piece together what these buildings are doing in your own mind and come up with your own stories. Um, and then the other aspect of the game, because very multifaceted, is there's these caves underneath your city that you're building that you get to go and explore. And there's a storybook that you flip through and you have your own little choose your own adventure that you get to have fun with uh, as whoever's playing with you reads out a story and you make decisions and that impacts how uh, successful your uh, journey into these caverns is. So it's a really interesting game. Uh, Plays differently every time I open it up and have always loved it. And it's other favorites. Oh yeah. It's part of a trilogy, right? Or like, I don't know if they're necessarily like a trilogy, but they're kind of the same look and feel. Yeah, he has a whole universe. I don't remember what it's called, um, but there is Above and Below, Near and Far. Um, those are the only two I'm 100% certain now, on. Now and Never. Now and Never. Yeah. And I think there's one more. I don't remember what that's called. But. I, well, he also designed Sleeping Gods, but I don't know if it's mm-hmm. in the same universe, but it has a similar look to it. And like the whole storybook. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I just love what, all what was the other game you were going to say. Oh, uh, there's just a few others that my wife and I really enjoy playing. Uh, Clank is a classic in our home. Yeah. Um, we also play a lot of Endangered Orphans of Condyle Cove, which is a bit more of a niche game. I haven't um, heard of that one. No. <laughs> it's an interesting game with a really heavy take that mechanic, um, which my wife is really good at, uh, where you're these orphans wandering around this little city and you're trying to avoid the boogeyman. Um, and you basically win by tricking the other orphans to be caught by the boogeyman before he catches you. Okay. Uh, I just like this, this <laughs> dark-ish humor. And it's got a beautiful, like, Tim Burton-y art style to it. Are there any, any games for you that are, like, 
on your radar that you're hoping to try but haven't haven't had a chance to play yet? I feel like all of them. Um, despite all <laughs> the games that I've played, every time somebody mentions a game, I'm like, oh, I've heard of that, but I haven't actually played it. Uh, yeah. Brass Birmingham is one of them. Yes. Um, I haven't had a chance to play that. Uh, I really want to try a lot of the classic Star Wars board games. Um, yeah. Star Wars Rebellion, I, I recently got to watch people play, but didn't get a chance to play myself. Um, and then they have the new Star Wars Clone Wars using the pandemic system, which looks really mm-hmm. intriguing. Um, and then there's Outer Rim too, right? I did get to play that, and that's a lot of fun. That's a good one. Nice. Yeah, I like that one quite a bit. I, in particular, I like playing as Han Solo going through the Outer Rim with Chewbacca. And <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a classic, classic duo. <laughs> Hard to beat. That's awesome. Cool. Um, so... We are going to be covering two, well, three main topics with you today. So we're going to talk about designing games, publishing games, and then we're going to talk about your upcoming game, Prestige. So let's start by um, getting into what it's like for you as a game designer. What can you tell us about your experience? How did you um, begin designing, going from just being a fan to Mm -hmm. deciding, I want to make one of my own? Sure. Um... The very first game I started designing uh, was after I had been with that roommate who had two, 300 board games. Uh, and this is a bit of a layered story, but essentially I, need, I needed an excuse to work on my woodworking skills um, because I was getting ready to propose to my wife. And I was building this big box thing that unfolded and it was a very elaborate proposal And I needed an excuse to practice those skills. So I decided that I was going to build myself a board game. And I ended up building this board game for that roommate uh, for a Christmas gift that year. Um, Cool. You're a good friend. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) And fiance, I I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I will note the board game itself uh, in its initial, uh, like, beautifully crafted wooden uh, aspects was very horrible to play. It was a horribly designed game, but that is often how it starts with all board games when you first yeah. design them. Uh, Makes sense, yeah. But it was just intriguing for me to like think through all these layers and like how things work mechanically. And from there, I just started messing with it. And it just kind of created this chain reaction where everything I was looking at, it was thinking about how to make that into a board game mechanically. Every idea that popped in my head started becoming about uh, how do you do that with a set of rules and some dice and some meeples. Um, And that's kind of how it all started. Uh, So, yeah. Cool. And out of curiosity, what was the name or like concept of that first game you made? Sure. Uh, The game was called, is called, I'm still one that I'm working on as like a back burner project. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's called Dust in Space, The Hopeless Game of War and Discovery. And the idea mm-hmm. is it's this massive um, space opera. And you get to play as different factions that represent cliche sci-fi civilizations. Right. Like you have one that is the robots out to destroy all organic life. And then you have one that is the religious zealot cult that is spreading through the galaxy. And then one that's the... Um, uh, this sounds oh, like Halo. Uh, <laughs> a little bit, yeah. <laughs> There's definitely some inspiration from Halo, a little bit from cool. Stargate, 
Star yeah. Wars. Um, but the whole idea is you're going into the galaxy, uh, not to necessarily build a massive empire like you get in a lot of these space opera games, but you're going out there to find the meaning of life. And you want to be the first one to find it before the other factions. But you have to balance the fact that, you know, going to war is probably not the meaning of life. And so that kind of deters you from your own path forward. So you have to be careful with how much you try to prevent your opponents from finding it by fighting them and conquering their planets, but also making sure that you're not taking yourself down the wrong path. That is such Uh, a deep... That's very deep. morally grounded com- concept for a game. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> very cool. And it makes it very difficult to design, um, which is why it's still on the back burner. But it's yeah, probably no the biggest passion project. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, that kind of leads into another question we had, which is just, I mean, you talked about with this game, the meaning of life. So I guess. This question is, what is the meaning of game design? Do you see it more as like an art or a science, more about crafting the perfect set of rules to like get a consistent, uh, you know, gameplay in or more about like creating a certain type of experience for the folks that are playing it? It's definitely a balance of both. And I feel like it depends on the game as well as the designer, which one you lean into first, as well as which one you lean into more heavily. Uh, games like Euro games will certainly feel more like a uh, science than it will necessarily an art form when you're designing it. Other games will have uh, a lot more thematic elements that are a lot more of an art form to weave into itself. Uh, just speaking to my own experience with Prestige, that game actually started as a spreadsheet. Uh, I just mm-hmm. thought of all these effects and balanced them out with numbers in a Microsoft Excel file. And that sounds really boring, but that's how the game started. <laughs> and yeah, then no, the art form came in as I weaved in the thematic storylines to make it all make sense and not just look like a bunch of numbers on a piece of paper. That's, yeah, that makes cool. sense. And I think that's actually like a pretty common thing because I, I remember watching an interview once with um, Elizabeth Hargrave, who designed Wingspan. Oh, yeah. And she was talking about how she designed Wingspan and what she started off with was a spreadsheet of birds mm-hmm. and because she actually you know um is into birding she was able to go through and like put in all the data about their size what food they eat um where they live all of that and then based on that come up with different bird powers and put it on the spreadsheet and balance it out that way before putting them onto cards so, yeah. yeah very good company <laughs> oh yeah i appreciate that <laughs> Well, and it makes a lot of sense because, I mean, I would guess that, like, starting with that makes it easier to, like, have a well-balanced game than starting with the theme, maybe? Has that been your experience? I think so, especially on games where you have possibly asymmetric powers or asymmetric balancing, which is a case with most of my games. I just really love asymmetry as a concept in the board game. Agreed. Um, other games that might be more story driven, you can probably weave the theme before you weave in the mechanics. Um, but yeah, I think most games are probably best starting out with the mathematical concepts and then evolve yeah. into the uh, the beautiful stories that revolve around them. Yeah, that's very cool. 
one other question that came to mind in terms of design was, you know, with with the wisdom and experience that you've collected from having designed a few games now, if you had to give one or two pieces of advice to an aspiring game designer out there, what would what would you tell them in terms of like, you know, tips for starting out, like could be tips for things that they should be sure to do or even things that they should maybe like avoid avoid and like steer clear of? Yeah, that's a great question. The biggest piece of advice I usually give someone, which is particularly to avoid missteps that I've taken in the past, is to not worry about your game as an IP, an intellectual property. Don't worry about someone stealing your idea. Uh, Instead, go out there and talk about it as much as you can. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, When we first become designers and we think we have this brilliant idea, a lot of designers, including myself, have this fear that, like, oh, we've designed this beautiful game. What if somebody just comes, steals it, because we don't have a patent, and then they produce it, and then I'm stuck holding the remnants of whatever was left over. But in reality, for one, the game design industry doesn't really work that way because the biggest amount of value that your game has is the testing and balancing that you've done as a designer yourself. Mm. Everyone can come up with an idea for a game and ultimately the idea itself isn't going to be the big value in it. It might be a great selling point, but it's not going to be the aspect that a company really wants to publish. It's going to be the fact that it's been well vetted and play tested. Uh, but also, if you're out there talking about it on forums and on Facebook groups and asking people to play test, the game design community is fairly small. So if your idea is actually stolen, which I've never actually heard it being done, but if it is stolen, the game design community has basically written a pact with itself that that is a quick way for whoever steals your game to be blacklisted and to... Uh, for the community to come back and like support you and say, actually, this is your, your design. We saw you post about it for three years now. We've all play tested it because you keep uh, posting about it and keep asking people to play and we know it's yours. So we're not going to support that. We're going to publicly de uh, publicly recognize that it's fraud and shut that down. So there's a level of security that comes from being engaged with the game design community, which also kind of leads itself into my next piece of advice, which is to check out some of the bigger game design communities out there. Mm -hmm. And it really depends on what platforms you're on. Um, The Board Game Design Lab is a huge one. If you use Facebook, uh, there's a huge plethora of information that you can just get through that by climbing through the archives. Uh, in their Facebook group. Um, There's also some great Discord channels for it. Uh, There's just a great community on Instagram that's not necessarily as, like, back and forth as these other um, social media platforms is, just by the nature of Instagram. But at least you are seeing what other people are doing and you're able to post about your own stuff. Um, And then also local design groups. Like, I try and meet with... There's this one group here in San Francisco that meets monthly and we just come to this local game shop, play test each other's games and give each other feedback. And it's a huge help 
because there's always going to be a million things that you don't see in your own game because you think it's the most beautiful uh, little baby in the whole wide world. Uh, but then other people are going to be there, able to be there and be like, actually, this is broken, this is broken, change that, this is that, and your game is just going to be better because of it. Right. Yeah. That's something that, I mean, I think is just really great about this hobby is that, you know, it's, it is decently big, but there's so many good um, people involved mm-hmm. who are very, you know, laid back and nice and open to just talking to complete strangers, you know, um, yeah. and, and like sharing advice. Like I know that like Jamie Stegmeier from Stonemaier games, like basically has a blog that's just free design and publishing advice. And there's so many games that will like include playtesters in the final product. Like I know some yeah. of the um, Everdell expansions had, like they list all the people that play tested it in the rule book. And um, like, I just got earth a couple of weeks ago, the new game and the inside of the box is just a thank you with all the names of the people who backed it. And yeah. it's like, that, that's a really nice thing that, you know, isn't yeah. necessary. And there are a lot of, you know, hobbies or products that don't do things like that. And I think it's a testament to this hobby that um, people are that open and, always looking to find new ways to include people and share their different concepts and support people trying new things. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. For sure. Cool. Well, and, I mean, inter- if we're ready to move on to publishing, I kind of had a, a follow-up question to what you were talking about playtesting. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I think pl- playtesting is a good, good one. Did, did you have something you wanted to ask on that? Yeah, I just, I guess you were talking about um, the importance of playtesting as part of the design process but mm-hmm. also from your perspective as uh, you know as someone who works in publishing how much playtesting gets done after a game has already been like picked up by a publishing company or do you expect it to be like you know pretty rigorously playtested ahead of time it'll really depend on the company um but most publishing companies will expect you to do the majority of the playtesting mhm that's really where your value as a designer comes in, just not just creating the idea, um, which is super valuable in and of itself, but also making sure that the idea actually works. So yeah. if there's any designers out there who are looking to publish with a publisher, my recommendation would probably be to make sure that it's fully vetted. Um, it doesn't have to be 100% vetted. Um, right. And speaking to my own experience, uh, I did first and foremost start as a hobby designer. Um, Prestige was never meant to be published in my mind. um, And there's a lot of reasons for that. But I eventually did just pitch it to Oak Lounge Games. And they signed me on uh, as uh, one of their published games before they took me on as their director of game design. And I was very upfront that the game wasn't complete yet. Um, It was probably like 60% there in terms of its mechanics and its playtesting and its balancing. But uh, because of that, I was able to continue to work on it as they worked on things like the art. So even though the playtesting wasn't 100% complete by the time I pitched, we just had an agreement of it will be done by the time the game is ready to hit uh, crowdfunding. So it doesn't necessarily have to be 100% there. I don't know how common my experience is, but it's definitely something that I think most publishers would be open to because 
more pub, more playtesting that the designer is willing to do, the less work that they have to do trying to fix things that they necessarily find are broken. Um, right. But there's definitely on the publishing end uh, a significant amount of playtesting that needs to be done as well to make sure that this investment that you've sunk your money and your time and your effort into actually is what uh, has been claimed and then making sure that it's tweaked to the point where it represents your company as you see it. Um, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. For sure. I guess one, I have one follow-up question just kind of on the nuts and bolts of play testing. Sure. And that is, I mean, you think about all the hours and hours and number of iterations that go into this. And I'm just kind of curious, how do you go about organizing that information, especially when you have like many different play testers? How do you like collect that feedback into a way that's like digestible and then weigh which changes are going to like, work versus which ones would like that trade-off between changing the game so much that it puts other parts out of balance. Yeah. Just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah. It's definitely something that's not easy to do. Um, It's probably one of the biggest challenges of playtesting, but the way that I typically try to approach it is I will listen to the playtesters feedback. I'll take notes on it and really highlight anything that stands out as a big change. Um, And then I have a running list of all the changes that I've made to the game, just in in a Word document. And if I look back at that list and realize it's something I've already tried, then I'll look back to, like, why it was eventually removed from the game or why it just didn't work, and that'll help me sort through those big changes. Little tiny tweaks I typically just, like, think through and... Ultimately, when it comes to balancing, there's no 100% right answer. So you just kind of have to decide what tweaks you want to take and what tweaks you don't. And eventually, through iteration, you're just going to find that you'll eventually land on the right formula, even if it's not necessarily all of the tweaks that are offered to you. And I think that's a big thing that a lot of early designers should probably hear is that you don't have to implement everything that your playtesters have given you for feedback you should definitely listen to them and hear them out because they've taken their time to play your game and uh, have thought about it enough to offer this feedback. But at the end of the day, you're the designer and you're the one that is going to know what is best for your game. And you just have to have a hint of humility when you do hear changes because you're not always going to like the changes that they suggest or the critiques that they have. But you also have to be able to discern, okay, they want this, but ultimately, is that really in line with my vision for the game? And if it's not, yeah. um, I think it's great to like design the game that you want because most of us are in this as a hobby or as a side hustle at most. It's not something where we're all going to be super professionals. Um, if you do end up being that next Jamie Stegmeier, then that's great. Then definitely <laughs> create a science behind it. But otherwise, just make the games that you love. Yeah, so I keep a running tab of... your all the changes that I've made. And then I will always keep a saved version of the previous iteration. That way, if I need to go back to it, I can. Otherwise, I'm pretty gung-ho to just jump in and make all these big changes that are suggested to me uh, just to try it out. And it's a lot of fun just to try things out. And if it crashes and burns, I just go back to the last iteration. 
That makes sense. It does it get tricky with those iterations to keep track of which version of the game different folks have play tested at different stages? Oh yeah, um, it definitely does. <laughs> uh, especially um, a lot of the people who play test are fellow game designers, and we just kind of yeah. trade play tests back and forth. And yeah. sometimes it'll be half a year since somebody played my game and same for theirs. And they'll come back and be like, Oh, like this is totally different than the last time I played. And I'll be trying to discern like, what rules do I need to teach you now versus like, (laughs) what rules do you remember and what rules are just completely new? Um, So it, I almost give up on the idea of remembering who's played what. And I just hope that at some point, if they come into my game and I've totally ignored all of their suggestions that they are, not going to take it offensively. <laughs> yeah. This is this made me think of a question. So we Ryan and I had talked a while back about whether or not we would ever want to design a game. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty much on the side of no. <laughs> and <laughs> one of one of my big reasons for that was I really enjoy playing my games. Mm-hmm. And I just I wonder the amount of time that you spend as a designer playing your own game over and over, do you find it easy or is it kind of difficult to balance playing your own game over and over again to make sure it's right pre-publication versus actually getting to play your favorites or try new things that are coming up? Yeah, um, I definitely think, I think there was actually just a post about this just for fun in the board game design lab. And the general consensus was that 90% of the time designers are playing either their games or another unpublished game. And then 10% of the time they're playing games just for fun, which even then they're playing because they want to try this new mechanic and see how it works or be inspired by this. Uh, So I think most of our game play time is actually revolving around design. I do really enjoy being able to take at least every once in a while a time to just like play a game because I love it. And I think that's why I end up playing a lot of games very many, a lot of times over and over again, like above and below I've played a lot and, and danger right. orphans I've played a lot rather than learning all of the new games. Cause I think the combination of not only learning my own game in a million iterations, but also learning a million other games, it would just be exhausting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I guess it's probably like, in terms of um, you know data gathering, it's probably more helpful to try and play another game over and over again, so you get to the point of like cracking the code of that game and like picking up on like the design fundamentals of it, which you won't get the first time playing a game. Yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, because I mean, there are a couple of games that I played so many times as well that I feel like I know the whole thing inside and out, and you can almost kind of deconstruct it in a way, which is which is uh-huh. fun in its own way. Because you feel like yeah, definitely. you almost have like a behind-the-scenes view at that point. <laughs> For sure. Well, I mean, one question that comes to mind now is we've kind of talked about different stages of the process, but I'm curious, like, what's your... If you take the process from start to finish of designing a game, what part do you enjoy the most? Like, what's your favorite part? I'll give you two parts. Um, mm-hmm. The first part is fairly early into the design process where... It might not be the first iteration of the game, but the first time when the playing the game feels good to you is like a really big moment for a design. And that's really cool to see something that was in your head coming together on a table with some friends 
especially if the first couple of times it didn't work that way. The first couple of times yeah, it did right. not translate to the table well, and then finally you got a version that really worked. That's a, a really fun experience. Uh, definitely one of my favorite times as a designer. The second part, which I only recently just experienced, is when you're able to integrate other people into the what will eventually be the publishing of the game and see it come to life through their own work, like this thing that you've taken to a certain degree and then have other people elevate it through things like art and story. Yeah. We recently just had all of our final art developed for Prestige. It was just amazing to see what this artist could do with what was very simple prompts. We didn't... Yeah. It looks really context, nice on your Instagram page. It looks great. Thanks. Yeah. And for context, the game has like a bunch of... I don't mean to keep talking about my game. No, it's oh, fine. No, it's fine. We'll, we'll yeah. talk about it more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, for context, the game has like 230 different buildings that uh, this artist had to illustrate. And all we gave her were the names of the buildings. And they were very basic names. And she just took her own interpretation and ran with it. It was just really cool to see how her thought of like what this type of building looked like in the ancient world might have varied from my thought, but still had the same core concepts. And yeah. it just really elevated in my mind because it was almost like a new game was born out of this process. And then we also integrated uh, several um, guest writers into uh, our event cards. And it was really cool just to see them write these little stories of uh, like a little snippet of the world that we had created, uh, like a very zoomed in view and just kind of bring the whole universe in this game to life. And that was really exciting. That's awesome. Um, Follow-up question on, on the first one. Sure. Have you ever... Um, been in the process of designing a game and given up on it because you didn't get to that moment or, or do you like usually work it out over time? That's a good question. Um, I feel like I've given up on games unintentionally mm -hmm. um, because I'm always coming up with like new ideas here and there. And I know I have at least like nine games that I've tried to some degree, but I probably could only remember about six of them. Um, yeah. So there's there's a few out in the ether of my mind that have been forgotten, probably. But otherwise, I've never really completely given up on a game with intention, like, ah, oh, this is just broken. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. Uh, there's mm -hmm. certainly levels of, like, wisdom that comes with being, like, this is either not going to work or it's too similar to something else that just isn't viable as a product or whatever reason a designer might give up on a game, but I haven't experienced that yet. <laughs> yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will say that there are some that I was really close to giving up on. Um, in particular, there was this roll and move game that I was working on and I mostly was designing it out of spite of the hatred for roll and move games. That exists. <laughs> um, and eventually I came to the realization of like, ah, oh, maybe they're right. But then I got another designer to just play test it once for me. And he was like, actually, you might have something here. So it's yeah. now officially okay. back on the back burner. And it might not be a roll and move game by the time it's done, but it is still alive, barely. <laughs> Very nice. cool. Um, so do we want to move on to Prestige? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Sure. So give us the sales pitch. Because okay. uh, 
I mean, as you mentioned up front, um, your new game, Prestige, a city building mm-hmm. game, is going to be live on Kickstarter next month. June 2nd, is it? It is, yeah. June okay. 2nd, we're launching. Uh, I'm really bad at giving sales pitches, but I'll give it my best shot. Uh, the idea of prestige is we are at the dawn of civilization and six nomadic tribes have come together to build a great city where all of their people can prosper. Uh, but these tribes have been at odds with one another for years and old rivalries die hard. So each of them want to be remembered as the tribe that built this great city. Um, But so uh, the idea of the game is you are working together to build a city and making sure it doesn't fall either in the form of being destroyed, abandoned, or forgotten to time. Uh, But if you succeed in building this great city, you will... um, Sorry, I totally messed that up. If you succeed at building this great city, only one of you will be remembered, and that is whichever tribe is most represented in the tableau that you're building together. So you take turns playing these different cards that are each representative of different parts of your tribe and what your tribe has to offer to the city. Uh, It can be anything from a specialty building to a unit that helps build the engine of your city. Uh, And each of these have different effects based on where in the city you're placing it. Uh, The one that I always like to go to, which was the first one that I ever started with, was the fish market. And... The fish market, if you place it next to a home-type building, uh, people will start to leave because nobody wants to live next to the fish market. (laughs) But if you put it next to a water card, uh, you'll gain extra coin because you'll gain more fish. You get more fish, yeah. Yeah. That's great. You you do a really good job at theme. Yes. (laughs) Picking up on that. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, and I don't don't want to jump in if you had more to say, but... um, Go for it. One thing that, you know, we, when we were just, you know, doing a, a, a little dive into the game to get introduced to it, we were really struck by the idea of like a shared tab, like engine building tableau. We couldn't think of another game that kind of does that. So we we were just kind of curious what, uh, what was the inspiration for that and what was the process like of, of, uh, building that from the ground up? Sure. The inspiration is going to sound really weird because it's going to sound off the bat, not at all related. But during COVID, a friend had given me his PS4 and (laughs) in the PS4 was a copy of Horizon Zero Dawn. And I just fell in love with this game. And I in particular really loved the city at the center of this game universe called Meridian. Um, For some background, I do work in the realm of city planning and city design um, my, my, uh, day job is actually to be a, a traffic engineer and I design roadways and all this fun oh, stuff. Nice. But, um, when I came across the city of Meridian in this game, is just like this beautifully designed city. I really liked how integrated everything was. And so I was listening to this interview with the game designers who talked about designing Meridian. And I was just really struck by how they talked about thinking through what each type of building in the city wanted to be next to, because in the ancient world, you couldn't just load all of your stuff into a freighter and let it go to the market. You would want your merchants to be next to the warehouses, to be next to the gate, and you'd want to have 
like your housing separated out so that it wasn't noisy and just all this thought that went into how they designed the city. And I was just like, oh, that could be a game. And so that's just kind of how I started building it. Um, so it's not at all like Horizon Zero Dawn. Don't go into it thinking that it is at all related to that game. But the way that they thought about designing their city is the same way that I approached the design for this game. Yeah, and I guess that's another like that's a really good example of um, just integrating different parts of your life into creating something new. So you mentioned, you know, yeah, you're inspired by this video game and by your day job and all these different things that you're obviously passionate about, and then you can combine that into something new and share it with people. That's another part of what I think makes um, this creative hobby so special. Yeah, that's really cool because honestly, like. It, it sounds like you're the only person that could have created this game in a way. Like, I don't, I, I don't know. Maybe there are a ton yeah, of urban no, planners that are game designers. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know of any others. <laughs> I've run across a few, but yeah, okay. uh, I definitely think this is like a product of, of my life. And yeah. that seems pretty cool to me that, oh, yeah. you know, it's going to exist. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Um, um about the artwork, because we kind of mentioned already. Yeah. Um, I'm a big, cool artwork in games fan. Um, and one thing <laughs> I noticed was, in addition to really liking the artwork, I also noticed that it looked like there were different kinds of cities. Like, it looked like mm-hmm. some of them came from different parts of the world. Is that right? Yes. And how does that work in the game if everyone has a shared um, tableau? Yeah, so... That actually relates to how we designed the game integrating in the art methodologies, I would say. Um, So we hired this amazing artist. Her name is Terry. And we commissioned from her six, or sorry, seven massive cityscapes. And each one represents a different faction in the game. There are six factions, and then there's a communal city deck of different cards that represent fairly basic things that every city in the ancient world would have, like a well and a road and things like that. Right. And so each of these images represents all of the cards in each deck in the game. And they're all designed so that they each have a little bit of their own character, but at the same time can mix really well when they're all shared into this tableau. So what we ended up doing was we took these massive cityscapes and then essentially chunk them out into cards. Uh, So each cityscape is broken out into 30 different cards, and then you, as the players, get to reassemble these cityscapes intermingled together uh, in your own shared tableau, which I think is just a really cool uh, thing that wouldn't have evolved if it wasn't for collaborating with Oak Lounge Games and with Terry, and it was just really cool to see it come together and... You are right that each tribe has its own, uh, it has its own color scheme and its own um, theme. Uh, So they definitely stand out from one another. But when they're all mixed together, it just looks like this beautifully diverse city where all of these different ideas are coming together while also seeming somewhat cohesive. Right. Have you um, seen or played uh, Wayfarers of the South Tigris? I haven't, but it's definitely one of those that it's on my list. <laughs> okay, because it's kind of reminded me of what they did there. I think it's the same thing where they had the artist design like a whole skyscape, seascape, mm. landscape, and then cut it up into different cards. Yeah. So okay. you can put them into any 
kind of order, but no matter what, they're all going to line up and create mm-hmm. a landscape and everyone's landscape is going to be different. So, yeah. and I mean, we both love that game. So <laughs> to hear that, you know, this might be something maybe not in the gameplay, but like the design, how the pieces fit together it, similar is really cool. Yeah. 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 That's really cool. So, and then I'm guessing that the, the different, you know, tribes also, is that where the asymmetric elements of the game come into? Yeah, and I would call it a subtle asymmetry in this game. Um, there are some games that really lean into asymmetry to the point where everyone basically has to learn a different game, and you just kind of yeah. hope you all can learn it at the same time. Yeah, um, That's not prestige by any measure. Uh, each tribe is very thematically based, so we have the priestly tribe, the crafting tribe, the fishing tribe, the warrior tribe, etc., and each of them has their own deck associated with them. And in that deck is where that asymmetry kind of lies because okay. each deck has 30 unique cards and each card has a different ability. So these cards represent different powers. And because of that, each tribe's slightly different yet balanced. But you don't ever have to learn like a new set of rules for trying out a new tribe. That's the best kind of asymmetry. Yeah, that's a very nice happy <laughs> medium. It's, uh, I know because... I mean, the big asymmetric game that comes to mind for, to me is Root, and like I really uh-huh. enjoyed it, but haven't played all the factions. And like, it's been a while since I've gotten it to the table because it's like if you're not playing it with the same group of people, and it's a lot, yeah. of, a lot of learning. Yeah. yeah, I've only ever tried to play Root once. I was at a um, table to- or a board game cafe, and yeah. my wife and I were playing it, and we've gotten through the rules after like an hour of trying to read them. And then we finally got to the point where we were like, okay, it's time to play. And we realized we were missing pieces. It was one of the most oh, disappointing no. gaming sessions. <laughs> Rats, that's but that's all right. On the other hand, I played Vast, the Crystal Caverns. Um, and oh, that is that a beautifully one. designed asymmetrical game where you're basically playing as different people in this cavern. You can play the knight trying to get the gold or the knight trying to slay the dragon, the dragon trying to protect the gold, the goblin trying to kill the knight or the cave trying to get everyone out of you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And everybody has different rules, but it, it's just a lot of fun, but it's a lot simpler of a game than root. So it's a lot easier yeah. for everyone to learn that pieces. That makes sense. This does sound like a yeah. fun one. Well, speaking of root versus simple. So just briefly <laughs> looking at the, um, the BGG page for prestige mm-hmm. right now, it says that, it has a two out of five weight complexity rating. Yep. Do you would you agree with that? Is that accurate? Just so people uh, who might be interested can have a sense of if this might be something they're interested in. Yeah, I hope so. Um, it, particularly because I at this point might be the only one who's given it a weight rating. Okay, um, <laughs> BGG. <laughs> yeah. That's what yeah, I, I, was, I was wondering. Like, how would that get there? But okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of hard to get people to rate your game. Um, prior to launch. So I, yeah. I hope that as the numbers come in, people will agree with it. But that was the aim of our design was to have something right around the two level. And with the 30 to 45 minute playtime. Yeah. Great. Yeah. 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 I like that because I think I'm, I'm like a big history nerd. Like I literally mm-hmm. just finished reading a book about the Silk Road. So it was like 600 pages long. So this game <laughs> sounds perfect nice. right now. Yeah. But I don't own any, um, like civilization building games mm-hmm. because a lot of them, they tend to be really big 
really expensive. Mm-hmm. They take a long time to play and just have a lot of like small pieces and maintenance between turns, you mm-hmm. know? And so yeah. it's, it's nice that this could kind of fill that gap of, you know, scratching that civilization building itch without it being um, a huge commitment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is definitely it. the goal of it because we, we all right. also have a ton of games like that. Um, I love like tapestry, which is a, a great stone Meyer civilization builder, but it does take two hours and it's got a lot right. of setup and you really have to wrap your mind around the rules. The first couple times you play it, this game, we've always wanted to be uh, a really quick game that you could play in under an hour and something that's interesting enough that every time you come back to it, it's something new, which I think we've accomplished through just the massive variety of cards and different strategies you can take to win. But at the same time, something that's approachable enough that a non-gamer can jump in and not be totally overwhelmed uh, by the first playthrough. Yeah. Cool. Sounds very intriguing. Looking forward to uh, seeing that <laughs> launch next month. Yes. Yeah. Me too. Um, <laughs> and I mean, before we before we wrap it up, just give everyone a reminder again that the game is Prestige, mm-hmm. a city building game, and it will be live on Kickstarter on June second. Yes. Fritz, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thanks for having this was, me. This is a great first interview, and <laughs> I'm glad you I think learned so. a lot. Um, yeah, it, and you had such like great, insightful answers to so many questions, and even things we didn't ask that you just shared with us. So thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. We, we wish you luck with the Kickstarter launch next month. Good luck. Yeah, thanks. And it looks great. And also looking forward to what you do next, whether it's um, finally publishing that initial uh, woodworking <laughs> game <laughs> or trying something new. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. All right. Great. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you so much.